0: Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we pray a simple prayer that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue your transforming work in us and among us, that you'd be making us a people who care deeply about you and the things of you, so much so that we pattern our lives after your characteristics. We pray these things together in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, some people will do almost anything for luck. I read a story this last week of Bimbala, Bimbala Das. In May 2006, Miss Das married a snake. She married a cobra because Hindus venerate cobras, and the residents of her village in India believe that Mrs. Das's serpentine nuptials would bring good luck to their town. Commenting on the nature of their relationship, she said, we communicate in a peculiar way. (laughs) Apparently their communication was broken on the wedding day as the snake charmers were unable to lure the cobra out of its home for the wedding. And instead a bronze replica was used as a stand-in, all in the name of good luck. No report, of course, of whether or not that good luck actually came to them or how that relationship is going to this day. Others are identified as some of the luckiest people in the world, some without even trying. Some try very hard. Take, for example, Dave Sharpton from Georgia, who's won the lottery three times, or a BBC story in 2002 that tells about a lawyer from England named Raymond Levy. Raymond Levy has survived not just one, not just two But he had survived three bombings throughout the course of his life. The first happened in 1978 in Manchester City while he was driving his car when an IRA bomb went off just 20 feet from his car. In April 1992, he was staying at a synagogue flat near the Baltic Exchange in London when it too was subject to a bomb attack. And his friends were hit by the shrapnel. He escaped unscathed. In 1996, a double-decker bus was blown up in Aldwych, London, killing three people and injuring eight more. And at the time, Levy was in a car at a red light within the blast radius. While the scene was being evacuated, he entered the bus to try to switch off the engine and prevent the gas tank from exploding. Now, depending upon how you look at it, he might be considered to be one of these guys that trouble follows him wherever he goes, or, As many people have claimed, maybe he really is the luckiest guy in the world. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Ruth. And I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me to Ruth chapter 2. And the reason why I introduced the sermon today with the idea of luck is that some look at what's happening in Ruth Ruth chapter 2 as one of the luckiest possible things that could happen to these two widows. Others might chalk it up to chance, still some will say that it was fate. But as Christians, we don't believe in luck, chance, or fate. As Christians, we believe in something called providence. And here in Ruth chapter two, we see this directive care of God as expressed in providence for his people. Ruth two is found on page 222 of the Pew Bible. And we're gonna look at it in different chunks today. But let me set the stage for you in case you missed last week. The book of Ruth is really about two widows, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, moved to the far-off land of Moab. They were full, they had two sons. These sons got married to Moabite women. And as time went on, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Sometime after that, her two sons also died, leaving three widows alone, in the land of Moab. One of the daughters-in-law went back to her family in her home country, but Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and made an oath to her that she would not leave her as long as she lived. And so they went back to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, and in doing so, Naomi was bitter toward God, And this bitterness blinded her from the blessings that God was trying to do in her life. They returned to Bethlehem, and Naomi claimed that she went away from Bethlehem full. While they were in Moab, the Lord had his hand against her, and now she was empty. And she was blind to what God was doing in her midst even now in this time, because as we read this story today, we see the reality that despite what Naomi feels and despite what Naomi sees with her very eyes, that God himself is actually taking this woman from empty, and he's starting to fill her back up again. And so there we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and we see that God provides for them, and he provides through the hard work of this daughter-in-law named Ruth. It says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after in him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came to Bethleh- came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, "The Lord be with you." And they answered, "The Lord bless you." And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, "Whose young woman is this?" And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, "She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, "Please let me glean and gather from among the sheaves after the reapers." And So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The story begins with what appears to be dumb luck. Verse 3 tells us that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. We will come to see that this is far from simple chance or luck, but God is actually directing the situation from behind the scenes. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a moment. Her husband is dead. She's a foreigner in Bethlehem, and she finds herself attached to a mother-in-law who's bitter toward God and bitter toward the people around her. The shock of the culture alone must be paralyzing in its effect, never mind trying to figure out how to function as a widow in this new place. And so what does she do when she's at this crossroads where she's, in essence, paralyzed with what to do and her mother-in-law is not much help to her? Well, Ruth did the only thing that she knew to do to improve the situation. She went out to work to try to provide for the two of them. When Ruth didn't know what to do next, she simply did the next right Thing. And you hear me say that from time to time because I think it's an important reminder for us. We reach these crossroads in life all the time when we feel paralyzed. I don't know what to do next. When you don't know what to do next, do the next right thing. And that's exactly what Ruth does. To understand what's happening here, you need to understand this ancient world practice of gleaning. Poor people and widows are often allowed to glean the fields during harvest time. And so the stage is set. In Boaz's fields, he has reapers. This is during the barley harvest. They go through and they cut down the stalks of barley. And then another set of servants come after them. In this case, it was young women who would come and they would pick up the stalks and they would bind them into sheaves. Following the young women would come those who would glean. And to glean simply meant that they picked up what was left over. The leftovers on the ground were meant and left there for specifically The poor, this was part of God's welfare program in the nation of Israel. Those who were able to glean were expected to do so. And we see that this is not just practice on Boaz's field. This is actually written into God's law for how his people should function. Deuteronomy chapter 24 tells us about it. It says this. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And so, on God's welfare program, this tells us something about Him. It tells us, at the very least, that He has a big heart for those who are orphans and widows and in need or foreigners. He's built this provision in His law. It keeps the people of Israel humble, it keeps them in the ever present reminder of where they came from. They came from slavery in Egypt, and simultaneously it provides for the ones who find themselves in that similar marginalized place. God provides in this way. He provides for Ruth and Naomi, and he provides in the context of her hard work. It's interesting, this law is meant to do something else, and we see it in its effect as it comes toward Boaz. This law is meant to increase or develop a heart of generosity in the people who own such things. We see that God not only provides for Ruth and Naomi, but we also see that God blesses them. And he blesses them in this next part of the story through the man named Boaz. Look with me at verse 8. Boaz has now come to the field. He's asked about Ruth, and he approaches her. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, "'under whose wings you have come to take refuge.' "'And she said, "'I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, "'for you have comforted me "'and spoken kindly to your servant, "'though I am not one of your servants.' "'And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, "'Come here and eat bread "'and dip your morsel in the wine.' "'So she sat beside the reapers, "'and he passed to her the roasted grain, "'and she ate until she was satisfied.' and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. As Ruth works the field, Boaz, the master, comes to take notice of her. Luck? I don't think so. This is a classic case of God working behind the scenes. And as a little rabbit trail on that note, it is interesting to me as a Christian that, it's, that we so often assume that God isn't working behind the scenes. When we don't see it, or when we don't feel it, we think that well, clearly God must be absent. I mean, how arrogant is it to think that the God of the universe, who can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, somehow is obligated to show us everything that he does when he does it. It's an incredibly arrogant posture to take, but yet we all fall prey to that very temptation. If I don't see it, or if I don't feel it, God must be absent. But indeed, we see here that part of the life of faith is trusting that even when we don't see or feel that he is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose and to care for his people. And we call this providence. Providence is God's direction and care for his people. Now that seemed to be sort of one of the natural reoccurring themes that we had in our last sermon series, but so we won't go into it at great length, But we see here, again, that this time, God uses this person of Boaz to exercise this type of providential care. Boaz comes on the scene. He notices the foreigner, and immediately he talks to her. And what comes next is an incredible sense of increasing generosity to a woman who doesn't deserve it, number one, and number two, who has no claim over the types of things that he's about to do to her. I see... At least seven forms of generosity. Look with me, verse seven, he allows her to glean the field in the first place. It was not her right, she needed to ask permission. Verse eight, he allows her to stay in the field. And what we see is that he's going to allow her to stay in the field for two months. Verses eight and nine, he allows her to glean close to the women without being kicked out under the threat of the men. So the men would function as sort of the bodyguards or the gatekeepers of this field. And if anybody was there that wasn't supposed to be to there, they would get the left foot of fellowship. And the women following behind would come up, and those gleaning were supposed to be back farther. He's saying, stay with my women, i.e. take the choicest of the gleanings. Verse 9, he allows her to drink from the men's water source. Verse 14, he invites her to eat with them until she's satisfied highly abnormal behavior. Verse 15, he allows her to glean not just near the women now, now he tells her to glean actually among the women. So he's moved her from a place of privilege to a place of even greater privilege. And verse 16, he tells them to intentionally drop some for her to pick up. Not only has God provided for Ruth and Naomi, but he's done so generously, and he's used Boaz to do it. It points certainly to Boaz's character. Boaz recognizes the heart of God for those in need, and he seeks to emulate this in his life. He doesn't simply stick to the letter of the law, but he moves to the depths of the spirit of the law. He has a heart of compassion and generosity. He sees the things that God value as it relates to his profession. And he emulates those things in his own life. I wonder if you do that. I wonder if you see the things that God values and make them the thing that you value. Now, certainly we all do that to some extent, particularly our favorite things, the things that come natural to us or easy to us. But compassion... And generosity are things that don't come all that easy to many of us. One of my favorite definitions of compassion, you've heard me say it before, is that compassion is when your pain is in my heart. When your pain is in my heart, you become compassionate for the other person. And I read recently the story of two kids from Cleveland in a great story of compassion. Maybe you've heard of it before. 2009, ESPN aired a story about D'Artagnan, Crockett, and Leroy Sutton. These were two high school students from inner-city Cleveland, and Crockett and Sutton were teammates on the Lincoln West High School wrestling team. Crockett is legally blind, and he was often seen carrying Sutton, who was a double amputee, on his back. The show was produced by Lisa Fenn, who was an ESPN veteran. She'd done stories about all kinds of famous athletes in the past. But when she finished this piece about Crockett and Sutton, she couldn't leave these two boys alone. She took it upon herself to help the one with no legs, being carried by the one who couldn't see, get to college. She raised donations from around the world, she coordinated college visits, she ensured that the boys were well fed every day, and thanks to her efforts, Crockett became a bronze medalist in judo in the Paralympic Games in London, and Sutton would eventually become the first member of his family to graduate from college. And after all the media hoopla died down, Leroy Sutton quietly asked her, Why did you stay? To which she replied, I love you. And he said, I I thought you'd say that. (laughs) But but why? Why did you stick around and do everything that you did? And Lisa Fenn would go on to write, I grew up on the other side of Cleveland, the white side. My parents scrounged up enough money for private school to protect me from the public schools and those people. But D'Artagnan and Leroy eased me in graciously. They opened up about their struggles. D'Artagnan, with great eagerness, as I think he had waited his entire life for someone to really want to know him and to truly see him. Leroy's revelations emerged much more reluctantly. He had been emotionally abandoned too many times before. But both began to believe that perhaps... I genuinely cared. I stayed because I would not be the next on the list of people who walked out and over their trust. I stayed because we only get one life and we don't truly live it until we give it away. I stayed because we can change the world only, we, only when we enter into another's world. I stayed because I love you. Compassion is when your pain is in my heart, and Ruth is flabbergasted at Boaz's compassion and generosity. In verse ten, we see her exclaim, "How is this that I have found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner," and it's her way of saying, "Why, why after all of this, why are you staying?" And he gives. Two reasons. Reason number one is because he had heard of what she had done. And reason number two is because there's a sense in which he desires to emulate the character of God himself. Firstly, he heard of what Ruth had done for Naomi after her husband died. How she clung to her, how she committed herself to loyalty, even in this foreign land of Israel. And he says this very unique phrase in verse 12. He says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord. Now that poses sort of an important question for many Christians. And Maybe we get to the center of that tension point by looking at the two poles. On one side, biblically speaking, and even in this story, we see that God blesses those who do what he wants them to do. <laughs> he blesses the people Who pattern their lives after the things that he would desire of them. Now, the danger, of course, uh, in, in this belief or the temptation for many of us is then to say, well, God blesses good people, he damns bad people, and he is the God that just responds constantly to my behavior in this life. And so if I do bad things, he flings lightning bolts at me, and if I do good things, he hands out lollipops. Here's the other poll. The other pole of this is that we know biblically that the greatest blessing in our life as a Christian is found completely apart from anything behaviorally that we do. That God saves people from their sins. He gives them eternal blessing and life with him independent of behavior, but only through faith because he chooses to love us and give grace to us Now, what's what's the temptation on this side? The temptation on this side is, well, once I've made my profession of faith, then I don't really have to care that much anymore about how I live the rest of my life. I mean, my ticket is punched. I'm all set. I walked the aisle. I said the prayer in youth group. I kneeled by my bedside. I committed myself to the Lord. And now I can drink, smoke, and chew, and go with girls who do. Romans 6, Paul talks about this. Doesn't he? What should we say? Should we sin that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. So here, bringing it back to Ruth chapter 2, we see both God's sovereign, providential care, independent of anything Ruth and Naomi has done. He has looked out for them and put them in a position of his blessing and his privilege. And at the very same time, there's a recognition that Ruth is rewarded. He honors those who live in a manner that's pleasing to him, and the application is simply this. Trust God and trust him alone for the saving work in your life, and then make it your mission to live in a manner that's pleasing to him to have your values reflect his values, to have your agenda reflect his agenda, to have his character reflected in the day in and day out happenings of your life because it is not insignificant. He actually honors those who live righteously. He honors Ruth in this way because she is reflecting a God in some ways that she's now just for the very first time coming to know. The second reason that Boaz blesses this young woman is that because he himself is trying to reflect something that he knows about God. And at the end of his blessing in verse 12, look at it again with me. He says, may the Lord give you full reward, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is saying, it's safe here. It's safe because of this God that we serve. Ruth is a widow. It's safe. The mighty one takes the little starling underneath his wings and he protects her. He provides for her. He gives her safety. She's a foreigner. But it's safe. She is needy, but it's safe. Because she has come to take refuge in God himself. And in doing so, there is no safer place that you can be in this world than taking refuge in him. My friends, that is the God that we worship and that we serve. That is a God that loves you. Thanks be to God who says, come to me and I will give you rest. The God who says when you are weighed down with the turmoils and the difficulties of this world, it's safe here. The God that says when you are riddled with guilt and pain and the weight of the world is on your shoulders because of your very own actions and your very own sin, it's safe here. My forgiveness for you is free. My blessing for you is abundant. I will protect you. Boaz is reflecting something he knows about God himself. And so the story comes to its conclusion, at least in the middle part here, and we take a step back from the middle of the gleaning of the grain field back to the mother-in-law, Naomi. In all of her bitterness, we see that God is beginning not only to provide for Ruth and Naomi, but to bless Ruth and Naomi. And he begins restoring Naomi from that place of being empty toward fullness again. And in doing so, he gives a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the Redeemer that is to come. Look with me at verse 17. Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Hear it with the inflection. She comes home with a ton of food and leftover lunch for a poor hungry widow. Where did you glean today? And where have you worked Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to the daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So not only did Ruth come home with an ample amount of food, but when she hears how she obtained it and who she obtained it with, her disposition toward God changes. Naomi, just days ago, is saying, don't call me by my name, it means pleasantness, call me Mara, I am bitter. And now, her expression, her disposition moves from bitterness toward recognition of the blessing that is in her life and actually thanksgiving toward Boaz. This is what happens when you are released from bitterness. (laughs) This is a miracle of God happening in her very midst. It's the same miracle of God that happened even in a lot of lives last week as many people came forward to ask prayer for the bitterness in their own lives. When God releases you of that, You begin to see him for who he is and what he's really doing. And we see this in verse 20. The woman that just a moment ago was talking about being bitter is now saying, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. Meaning, his kindness has not forsaken me. God in his compassion has taken Ruth from full when she went away to Moab to empty when she was in Moab and returned to Bethlehem, and now he's starting to fill her back up again. And we see that God provides for Naomi and Ruth because he cares for the needy and he blesses the righteous. Why does God do this? He cares for the needy and he blesses the righteous. He cares for the needy and he blesses the righteous. So what are we to learn from this part of the story? We learn something about ourselves and we learn something about God. We learn, first of all, that both Ruth and Boaz serve as an example of moral character to us. Ruth, in her hard work, in her love, in her loyalty, in her humility, these are characteristics that we are to emulate. Boaz is clearly a man's man. But yet he's gentle, he's compassionate, he's generous. He makes God's values his values. He uses his wealth to care for those around him. If you want an example of moral character, look to Ruth and look to Boaz. And it's often said that women, you want an example to follow, look to Ruth. Men, you want an example to follow, look to Boaz. Those of you who are in need, you want an example to follow, look to Ruth. Those of you who are wealthy, look to Boaz. These are people who are models in this respect. But we also learn something about God. We see that we have a great God who cares for the needy, and he blesses the righteous. Some might call it luck that a young woman finds herself in a field of a man who takes notice of her, who cares for her, who provides generously for her, and who we have now the very inklings, the very beginnings of a love story beginning to emerge. The romantic ones among us might even call that fate. This is neither luck nor fate. It's providence. The -the behind-the-scenes working of a loving God caring for his people. And if you are here today and you're a Christian, you need to know In a variety of ways, behind the scenes, he is guiding for and caring for you. God provides for Naomi and Ruth because he cares for the needy and because he blesses the righteous. And in case you missed it, there's just a glimpse of the Redeemer to be found in verse 20 as Naomi proclaims that this man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours. He is one of our Redeemers. Come back next week and we'll talk about the ongoing nature of this story of redemption. Please pray with me as we close our service in a moment with one more song. Let's pray together. Father, instill in us hearts of compassion and generosity as we see your heart as compassionate and generous as reflected in the person of Boaz. Instill in us loyalty and self-sacrificing love and hard work that we see in Ruth. And above all of those things, God, give us a greater sense of trust in you, the God who sees all and knows all, the God who works in time and space and circumstances, in some ways we feel and recognize, and in other ways that do not become evident to us until some many days, weeks, months, or even years down the line. But we trust in your providential care. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.